coming up on Chopper's Politics. My old joke to people is, you know, you think Yes Minister's a comedy. I know it's a training film, you know, because they don't like being scrutinised. Whitehall's all about control of information. That information is power. They know that. So they tend to hoard it to themselves. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, Chopper to my pals, Associate Editor for Politics at the Daily Telegraph. And this is Chopper's Politics Podcast. Finally, the COVID inquiry starts next week and the government is in a right old tangle about what to do about it even though it set up the inquiry in the first place. Ministers are currently refusing to hand over WhatsApp messages about secret chats behind the scenes during the pandemic crisis to Heather Hallett, Baroness Hallett, despite Boris Johnson's entreaties. More on that from Labour later. And this weekend, the Tories will narrow a shortlist of candidates to be Conservative mayoral challenger to London Mayor Sadiq Khan in next year's election to City Hall. We'll be chatting to one of the most interesting candidates on the slate, Daniel Korski. But first, the Telegraph's investigation team has been raising concerns all week about a shadowy government body called the Counter Disinformation Unit, which has been used to spy on lockdown critics. And MPs are now concerned, particularly those who are snooped on, like David Davis, the former Conservative cabinet minister. David joins me now. David Davis, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. My pleasure. Back in the Red Lion Pub, your spiritual home. <laughs> it's where I came the moment after I resigned. You've got a huge political history. I, let, let's talk about one thing which is in the news at the moment, this counter-disinformation unit run by the Cabinet Office, which was deemed to target or monitor or look at or keep watch on critics of the lockdowns during the COVID pandemic. Did you know you were being monitored? No, not at the time. Early on, during the early part of the, of the COVID pandemic, I, I began to worry that we weren't really making decisions on science. Indeed, I started, I started sort of FOIing and putting questions in about the polling data because I thought you know, it looked more like the government was making judgments on uh, focus groups and polls than it was on any science. You know. Bear in mind the science was very primitive at that point. And I started asking about that and getting absolutely blanked out. And a lot of the arguments going at the time were not really between science and non-science. They were between authority and non-authority, really. So let me give you one example. Some people, quite quite well-qualified people, uh, were worried that this virus had come from a laboratory. They were absolutely crushed on social media. Mm. You know, they were sort of cancelled and God knows what else. Perhaps not helped because Donald Trump was saying it as well. Yeah, yeah of course. And I so mean, he was discrediting it by saying it. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, your, 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 great, your greatest problem when you're taking an, an, an anti-authoritarian line is you're often yeah. alongside a lot of lunatics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and you've got to watch that. But, 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 you know, that was the earliest example. But t- we began to see time and time again over things like what worked, lockdown was one of them. Mm. Uh, even over the issue of basically disabling parliament which is what the covid emergency legislation did i was one of the very few who complained at the time so there was a strange air of the government carrying on with nobody to control it and then parliament being disabled but we didn't really know that we are actually being monitored i think if we'd known at the time there would have been absolute outrage. it it was your public messaging wasn't it is they were looking at what you were saying on twitter and elsewhere i mean yeah but you have to ask why it's it's not called the the disinformation monitoring unit it's called the counter disinformation unit right i mean Mm. we still to this day don't know 
were they asking them to change the algorithm? Because bear in mind, in this day and age, you can get away with basically reducing somebody's effectiveness, mm. not by cancelling them, which is high profile, mm. but by changing the algorithm so nobody mm. sees it. And all you were asking what, what appears to be was for more transparency and accountability. More transparency, more accountability. Actually, frankly, oddly enough, more treating the science with more respect. I mean, let me give you one example where I was cancelled, mm -hmm. right? Yes. I was cancelled by YouTube, albeit only for 24 hours. Yes. Because, uh, and in fact, it, I was back up before I'd known I'd been cancelled. <laughs> and the reason for that was the Daily Telegraph had rung up. And uh, so to ask why you've been cancelled. Ask why, why is David? And then, then, of course, they panicked at that point. They realised they'd, they'd yeah. caught a shark in the net. <laughs> and the, um, <laughs> but and what had happened is, uh, I think Big Brother Watch had, had videoed me making a speech against vaccine passports, vaccine ID cards, whatever. Uh, and the reason I was doing that was because the claim the government had made with the vaccine stops transmission had been proven to be untrue. So the perpetrators of disinformation was the government on that occasion. You, know, you have to wonder, and when I talk to YouTube, they say, oh, well, it was the algorithm. Mm. And you have to wonder how many of these algorithms are agreed with government? Yeah. You know, how many of them? Because they're very... They're very pro-establishment algorithms. We're quite, quite careful going down these routes, haven't you? Because it's mm. quite a... Colleagues of yours, MPs, former colleagues of yours, now move to different parties are concerned about this kind of thing, aren't they? And yeah. they go down what I see as rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. And you have to make sure you don't go too far well, down, yeah, down right. rabbit holes. I mean, you, you do. And, and as I say, sometimes you have people alongside you. You're not, you're not people you would pick as allies, you know. Mm. But the, tru you know, the truth is the truth. You know, my first degree was a science degree and I'd intended initially to, be, to have a scientific career. And science is about testing hypotheses against the facts, you know. And if the facts say it's not true, you scrap the hypothesis mm. and try something else, right? You don't, like Matt Hancock, say this is the way it's got to work and we'll scare the pants of them until they obey. I mean, that's a quote from the WhatsApp. That's uh, right. That's his own WhatsApp. That's in Telegraph WhatsApp uh, disclosure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the easier option, the latter. It's harder to, to admit you've failed to start again. It's easier to go down one route and, and convince yourself you're right, despite the evidence you may not be right. That's correct. And, 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 it's, and, and it's even worse when you've got the whole world involved. I mean, basically, I mean, everybody except Sweden mm. did broadly the same thing. Now, Sweden actually, by the looks of it, did the best thing. <clears throat> but to do so, the Swedes had to stand up to oh, ferocious criticism, international criticism, accusations of... Being risking lives and all that. Risking lives, being irresponsible. And of course, people are also very, very, very cautious about, about taking on the government yep. when lives are at risk. I mean, quite properly, to be honest. Um, but look, you, you had a front page story the other day. The story in the off this week talked about lockdown benefits, a drop in the bucket compared to the costs, yes, just the impact of the exactly. costs on education yeah. and everything. Uh, but not just, not, ju I mean, not just financial. I mean, there, a lot of people would say, well, it d doesn't matter how much it costs, we, we should do it. But also in lives, you know, mm. that we've got all these unexplained excess deaths now, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we know what it did to the health service. I had constituents who... Uh, who basically died early because everything was so clogged up, they didn't get their cancer test. I mean, this is a literal case. Didn't get their cancer test, didn't get... So, so to come back to the CDU, yeah. you know, what on earth was it doing? I think, I think its genesis was in the concern that foreign nations might meddle in our uh, electoral system. Now, that's legitimate. That's a legitimate concern. But, yeah, but then why be so 
cagey about it. Mm. You know, we still to this day can't find out how much the government spends on, on, on a CDU. They won't tell us. You're naturally a suspicious person. I remember vividly uh, when you were Brexit secretary, you had a Faraday cage in your briefcase. <laughs> so uh, you, you, you told me that. Uh, uh, and that was to stop um, spies sp- um, taking p- okay, pictures of your Brexit papers. It wasn't that I'm suspicious. It was that Ollie Robbins, the first thing he said to me is, is Secretary of State, you have to understand you are the target of every single agency in the world. So we were a bit careful. But the but the truth is, you know, if the government if the government conceals things, yeah. I'm afraid that is a reason for suspicion. You have to say to yourself, why are they concealing it? Is there yeah. a legitimate reason? You know, and there's a legitimate reason to conceal. I don't know the actions of the intelligence agencies or special forces, or whatever. But it should. Is this over the top? Is it not acceptable? Maybe to have a unit watching out for criticism? I mean, does it seem right to you no, in any sense? No, well, look, if it's public domain stuff, your, yeah. your, your private office, your department, if you're a minister, yes. throws up things where people have disagreed with yes. you because you, in a democracy you have to make the argument. Yes. But, you know, that's not what it is. It's called counter-disinformation unit. One wrong. of the other ones called the rapid response unit. Yes. The other one's called Regiment 77. Or yes. I mean, these, these, these are not banal, bland, you know, just checking to make sure the minister knows yes. what's going on. And, and we saw from the, from the Hancock WhatsApp, you know, how much this was about managing mm. the public mind, you know. Now, what they would argue, I guess is, well, you know, if people get the wrong idea, they won't take the vaccines, and so on. But, you know, the truth is, the best way to deal with the public is to treat them as grown-ups mm. and to tell them the truth and say, look, OK, if somebody said to me, I found out myself about vaccines, I, took all, I had all three, you know, and I stopped mm. there, that was enough, because by then we had Omicron. I knew, I knew at the time there would be side effects because it, we hadn't done a full testing programme. We did it fast, you know. That's understandable. Reasonable, you know, reasonable. balance of risk and so on. And, but then it leads you into wrong policies, you see. This mindset leads you into wrong policies. So let me give you an example. You know, it's, it's absolutely intelligent when the, when the disease kills people above the age of 75 or whatever. I mean, the, the, big, the big group and certain other groups diabetics and so on are particular at risk it's absolutely intelligent to take the the vaccine despite side effects right but if you're in an age group and a health group where the the risk is essentially zero risk of death is under 25s maybe under 25 certainly the under fives you know do you really want to expose them to to what could be quite serious side effects you know everything up to myocarditis and things like that the the answer is no but you deal with that by being open about it you've been around for you're one of the experienced parliamentarians out there you take these on these un- unpopular causes why do governments become authoritarian i mean i don't want to start you to write like some kind of dissertation but it sounds like it is one uh, partly it's 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 the natural tendency of organizations organizations don't like being monitored you know i mean this this cut this dates that or even scrutinized exactly this dates back to when i was public accounts committee chairman in the noughties in the noughties my old joke to people is you know you think yes ministers are comedy i know it's a training film mm-hmm. you know because they don't like being scrutinized Whitehall's all about control of information that information is power they know that so they tend to hoard it to themselves but the second reason and this is understandable is when they run into threats they've never seen before and we saw this really strongly with Tony Blair, with the counter-terrorism, you know, after 9-11 and so on. You suddenly had a whole yes, that was 90 day detention, 48 day detention. Yeah, all, all that stuff, which we defeated the government Which you on. and you yeah. fought with yeah. Chairman Jack Barty against. Yeah, that's right. You? Well, it was the first defeat. And resigned over a bit of being yeah, Shadow Home right. Secretary. But the first defeat of Blair 
was in 90 days, you know, and as you say, I resigned over the, uh, the, the uh, 42 days, uh, and we stopped it. You know, we stopped it, basically, uh, partly in conjunction with Eliza Manning and Buller, the retired head of MI5, who agreed with us that this was gone ridiculous. But that... I think the Telegraph, too. I think, you know, you had a... a and and Shadow Track Party from Liberty. There was a all of that. There was a sort of coalition, a really weird cross-party, cross-organisational yeah. coalition. And, uh, and, and the reason that the state was getting so authoritarian was one, lives were at risk. Always remember that comes up time and again. And two, they didn't know what else to do. They'd never mm. faced something mm. like this before, you know. So, and the same is true yes. with a disease, with a pandemic. So and fast forwarding to the CDU then, yep. you as a party, your colleagues have oversight of this stuff. Why can't they shut it down? Should they shut it down? Basically, yes, I think it should. Unlike 25 years ago, there would be a limit to what they could do 25 years ago because you either shut people down or not. And if you shut people down, you end up with the cancel, the cancel culture debates and what we've had with uh, all the woke stuff and so on, and people can defend themselves. The trouble today is we don't know what the algorithms do. We have no idea what deal they've struck with Google or Twitter or whoever. And that's, you know, and that's a really serious influence on debate, not just in Britain, but across the entire world. How is, how is the government doing? Well, it's doing a lot better than it was. Marks out of ten. Um, six, mm. right? And let me tell you why. Um, when I voted for Sunak, I mean, I, was, I think I may have told you before, I was plagued by trust supporters saying, oh, you're a low-tax Tory, you must vote for trust. And I said she's going to give low taxes a bad name. And, of course, that's what turned out, unfortunately. So I voted for Sunak. Why did I vote for Sunak? Because I disagree with him on a number of policies. Because I wanted somebody competent. I wanted a grown-up. I wanted somebody who would grip things, right? But I always thought that's only half the story, right? We've, and, and we're almost literally halfway there. We've halved the Labour lead, okay? But to, to close the other gap... We have to deal with the vision thing, as mm. people like to call it around Whitehall. But what do we mean by that for, for, your, for your more human listeners? <laughs> um, we don't mean some flowery rhetoric at a party conference. We mean, you know, how, are we going to fix the problems you face? Are we going to let, for example, organise things so that your son or daughter can buy a house? Mm. You know, or you can buy a house if you're, if you're in the 20s, you know, uh, in 20s and early 30s, uh, which at the moment they can't, you know. Are we going to fix things so that your granny can get a cancer test on time so that she can actually be treated before it, it becomes too late? Are we going to ensure that your small business can prosper, in my view, by cancelling IR35? I mean, there are lots and lots of possible policies. Um, but all of them are slightly controversial, which is why people... And costly. And, and sometimes costly, sometimes costly. Um, but Rishi's got to make some judgment calls on this. Some vision stuff. What's your top three? Well, top three is just straightforward income tax. I mean, really, yeah. number one is income tax. Well, top rate goes, uh, trust site. Push it, push, not the top rate goes, but push the top rate further up. I mean, look, when it, when it first came in, it was about a million people. Now it's about eight million. It's going yeah. to be about so eight It's a million. threshold issue. It's a threshold issue. I mean, you know, the, you know, we're a Tory party. We should believe that increased effort, increased skill, you know, increased talent should all be rewarded. Should the state shouldn't confiscate it, you know. And so uh, I'm very, very keen that we see some movement on that, some movement on income taxes. I would do something about inheritance tax. I wouldn't abolish it at this stage, but I'd take it significantly above a typical house price. Mm. Yeah. 
you know, and I mean in London, not just in... in it's 325, in, you can double it to 650, can't you, as a couple? But should it be a million, I, I a million tre- pound I, I treble it, I treble, you treble it, it, really, because... because or the 325 again. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah I treble it. And the, the reason I treble it is because, is because you want to take ordinary people out of inheritance tax, you know. I don't care if the Duke of Devonshire pays inheritance <laughs> tax, but I do care uh, if my neighbour does. Yeah. Mm, so, so that's 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 my big thing, really. And anyway, the Duke of Devonshire employs accountants, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And these things can claw back that um, 15 point leave, which seems to be cemented in now for Labour. Well, I think, I think, yeah. I mean, look, you, at the moment, the, from the public point of view, this is not my view. From the public point of view, you've got technocrat playing technocrat. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, Starmer v, v Sunak. Starmer v Sunak. That's what it looks like now. Sunak looks like the better technocrat. But we've got to be more than the better technocrat. We have got to be the people who actually encompass the wishes and desires and ambitions of the British people. We have these, we have these ambitions from Richard Sunak, one of which is to stop the boats. Is his, talk, is his plan going to work? Well, I have my doubts about some parts of it. I mean, I look, let, let, let me be fair. I mean, they've already got a little bit of progress, right? But you've got two sets of problems. Illegal immigration and legal immigration. Yes. They're both issues, you know, and we tend to focus on the boats all the time, but the other one's quite big too. Well, bigger. Yeah. Much bigger. Well, in number terms, much bigger. Um, and so the Rwanda policy is based on a Nauru policy in, in, in Australia, where they <clears throat> basically sent all their um, uh, illegal migrants to, mm, the to an island. Uh, there were 3,000 odd there, and they had 2,000 odd complaints about uh, assaults and sexual assaults and so on. Very, very unpleasant, right? Now, I don't think we'll have the same problem in Rwanda. You'll have different ones. You know, they're going to catch malaria or dengue fever or whatever. And the question is whether it will work, because we, I think the range of numbers we get to uh, Rwanda before the election is probably only 500 or so, you know, once you get past the courts. And they will get past the courts. Is that enough to deter somebody who's come all the way across Europe, is willing to get into a small boat and cross the channel? I'm not sure it's going to make that big a difference. Uh, so and if that you, fails as deterrence, the whole so, thing falls. Well, well, no, they're doing it. No, no, no. This is this is where I think they've got to refine what they've already done. One thing Rishi has done is struck up a better relationship with France. All right, we fell out with the French post Brexit, and obviously Boris annoyed the hell out of him, you know, out of Macron. You know. And uh, we're now back on a sensible thing. We've gone from forty-three percent stops to fifty. 43 to 52 or 42 to 53 anyway it's about 10% change right it needs to be much bigger than that and it can be and you'll 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 be I'll probably give you I'll probably shock you by saying this where should we look for the model Europe (laughs) right (laughs) because Europe's got an organization called Frontex right it has airplanes flying up and down the Mediterranean a much bigger area to monitor <clears throat> Those airplanes have got synthetic aperture radars, they've got long-range cameras, they've got long-range infrared, they've got units of detection of mobile phones. They're spotting them before they get to the beach, right? Not even in the water, before they get to the beach. We could do the same here, you know? And if we get them before they get to the beach, there's no reason in theory you shouldn't get 100% of them. So that's point one. Point two is when the, when the French stop them, what do they do? Do they charge them? Do they say, "Ah, oh, you've been on five in a row. You may, you may be an Albanian gangster." You know, mm. I mean, the, 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 we, you know, you've got to root this out at, at source. Be like Sweden. Sweden, you don't get into the country. You don't get into a process. You're turned round. You're Albanian. You don't get. You don't get asylum. End of story. Off you go. That's it. And we've got to be as simple as that about some of this stuff. David Davis, what would you do about Boris Johnson? 
Well, leave him to cope with his current problems. I mean, I'm... I'm uh, surely a rapprochement is needed. I mean, he is a vote winner in the Red Wall. You have to admit that. Well, I'm not so sure, bluntly. Um, firstly, he's got to get through the, yes, the, the privileges thing, right? I'm not sure that's going to be a comfortable process for him. But secondly, in the Red Wall. I went round 17 Red Wall seats <clears throat> in the last you election. You live in the Red Wall. I live in the Red Wall. But I went round 17 seats, and the Tory party, in its stereotypical way, sent me to council estates at every single one. Lots of swing voters. What were the first two words they said to me? They weren't Boris Johnson. They were Jeremy Corbyn. And then maybe we talked about Brexit, maybe a bit, but it was Corbyn, tax, patriotism. Those were the things that so Johnson it. is oversold, you think? Johnson is oversold. Look, there is a, there is a significant faction of people who love him because he's an entertainer, he's got a certain charisma, but what we need now is a grip on the country's problems. Does your party need him? No. No, no. I, no. So you think the party can, can, can junk Johnson? And, and it's not junk Johnson any more than they junk me. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it, no. It, it is his time has been and gone. You know, it's for Boris to go and do other things now. For those people who say he's going to come back, no, no, no never. Uh, he's going to go do other things. He can have a great life, writing books. You know, uh, making very expensive speeches, <laughs> whatever. That's fine, and I wish him well with that. Indeed, I was one. Remember, who fought to allow him to keep. Uh, all the sort of grace and favour houses in the in, in the interregnum because I didn't want him treated badly, but it doesn't mean he should come back. David Davis, former Brexit secretary and uh, well experienced and really brilliant parliamentarian. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. David Davis, there. Right. Do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, we'll be hearing from a senior shadow cabinet ally of Sir Keir Starmer about whether he might take the UK back into the European Union if he becomes Prime Minister. Yep, that old issue again is Brexit, right after this. We're interrupting this podcast to bring you news of another Telegraph show we think you might like. It's called Planet Normal. And it's hosted by me, Liam Halligan. And me, Alison Pearson. We're both Telegraph columnists who share the view that far too often those who shout the loudest on the telly just don't represent the views of normal people. So take a trip with us to Planet Normal. We're joined by some stellar guests, well-known voices from politics, business and the arts. All from different fields, but they have one thing in common. They're at the top of their game, but distinctly down to earth. The good news is I finally learned what a podcast is and even how you subscribe to it. It's actually quite simple. Search for Planet Normal on your podcast app or click on the link in the show notes for this episode. You don't really know what a podcast is, do you? I am one. Look, I am one. Who needs to know what it is? I am one. Okay, shut up. (laughs) And we're back. Now, next week, the COVID inquiry finally gets underway. And we still don't know if it will disclose the full picture of what the government and officials are talking about on those WhatsApp groups. What would Labour do to sort out this row if it's not resolved, if it forms a government later next year? Baroness Chapman, Jenny Chapman, is Labour's shadow cabinet office minister. And she's got some views on this. She joins me now in the Red Lion pub. Baroness Chapman, Jenny Chapman, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Lovely to be here. Are you used to the Red Lion Pub? I'm not, I'm afraid. I'm not, not. No. You're not used to No, being? I should make more effort, shouldn't yes, I? Yes, well, this is where the, no, real, the quite... real plotting happens in this pub. 
Is it? Well, I, then I shall definitely get involved. No. <laughs> you, you're the you're the shadow cabinet office minister in the Labour Party. What do you make of the row about WhatsApp messages and this COVID inquiry which starts early next week? I think that it's just such a bad look for the government on this issue where so many people have died and you've got grieving families and there's a row about WhatsApp messages. It's just not a good look. And I think it's such a shame because, you know, obviously there's lots of reasons to have this inquiry about learning lessons, decision making, and those are very, very important. But part of it is about a moment of complete openness. With Catharsis, the public. right? It, exactly. It? That's the right word. And the idea that the government is now going to these lengths and going to court to try and hold back information that might not be relevant. You know, I wouldn't want to read through Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages, believe me. Well, I would, actually. Just because, just <laughs> for the lols. You've got a stomach than Just me. for the lols. But, you know, the idea that Baroness Hallett, who's been appointed to do such an important piece of work, can't be trusted to filter some text messages. But it's her legal duty exactly. to work out what's relevant for her yeah. inquiry. And the problem they've got, I think, as a, as a observer, is they're undermining the actual report before it's even written. Yeah. Because it's going to be seen as something which was, she didn't have all the evidence. It only works if you give her all the evidence. So now the problem they've got is people are trying to work out why they might be doing this, what's the motivation, are they running down the clock... And all of this just makes it worse and worse. And then you have George Freeman saying, well, you know, we're probably going to have to give the information anyway. I'm disappointed, actually. I thought I thought Sunak would have more about him. Do you, well, do you blame him or do you blame the system? Do you blame officials, civil servants, not wanting their WhatsApps to be given over? From my understanding of it, it's quite a limited number of individuals. It's not everybody who is involved. It's sort of 40 or 50 or so people. And I'm sure civil servants wouldn't, relish that idea but they are highly trained civil servants and they will have known that when you're making decisions however you're making decisions that is a process that could be subject to scrutiny and you just have to sometimes do the right thing and when you've got grieving families versus someone feels a bit uncomfortable you go with the grieving families every single time and I do blame Rishi Sunak, unfortunately. Well, it's, his, it's his watch, his government. Charge. Yeah. And I mean, he's a decent individual, I, th- I think. But equally, they're in, it's on their watch, this is happening. Yeah. yeah. I guess there's, I guess they're hoisted by their own petard in the sense that back in the day, the idea of sofa government, yes. uh, choices made on away from the minuted civil service on sofas. Obviously, we know about Tony Blair doing it, David Cameron, and, and then that moved on to WhatsApp. So mm. now they've got this minutes of these informal chats. And I wonder whether we're going to see a retreat from WhatsApp on, in government. Well, maybe, and perhaps that's the right thing. In, in your government, maybe, if you yeah. form the government. I mean, I think a lot of us are very careful now about what we put on WhatsApp compared to how free and easy you might have been. Call me, Jenny. Exactly. It's a fair <laughs> bit of that. But I just think even whatever the legalistic arguments are, there are families at the heart of yeah. it. And that has to come first. If you, root, if you root all questions in that, you don't go far wrong on this. Well, uh, and that's right. And I would have thought, I, I thought that Rishi Sunak would get that. And I'm really quite surprised that he doesn't. I mean, my mum died in April last year, not from COVID, although she'd spent, you know, two years avoiding getting COVID. Got on her own, away from you, I imagine. Yeah. Um, you know, exchanging gifts at the end of the garden, yeah. all of it. She was a nurse for 40 years. She took it seriously. And um, she gets admitted to hospital, gets COVID on day, day one. But the reason she died was because she didn't 
get help for her symptoms that turned out to be advanced cancer. Mm. And she didn't get that help because she thought she was doing the right thing. And so it's not just about was the lockdown the right thing. It's the issues around care homes, the issues around hospitality you know all of this stuff needs to be looked at and we need to understand and learn lessons i mean i'm looking at the telegraph and today we report that victims of heart attacks in the first four weeks of the first lockdown have lost 18 months of their life expectancy i mean obviously let's not relitigate lockdowns covid but let's ask the question do you wish labor hadn't gone all in on lockdowns as it did supporting the government then i don't no, because that you don't that know would be or no. No, I don't think so. Because no. I think it was very important at the time that we were united as a as a political leadership of the country, and the opposition is part of that on occasions. You know, when you when you're confronting mm. big an enemy moments. almost. Uh, yes. Uh, yep. So I think that the only responsible thing to do at that stage was to get as much briefing as as we would be permitted by the government, and accepting for something extraordinary being proposed that was, you know, obviously... The, well, the second and third lockdowns too. I mean, you know, when we knew more after the first lockdown, didn't we? Yeah, we did. But I think at that point, you know, we were getting variants. The vaccine still hadn't been rolled out. We were into tens of thousands of people dying. The thing that I do, and this is a very personal thing, yes. but the thing that I do soul search about more than anything is schools mm. and the fact that young people now who are doing their A-levels or their GCSEs have missed so much and the impact on their mental health and their sociability and you know it's not yet fully understood is it no it it really isn't and I think there's a lot of this has got to work through and I do have deep concerns about that and I think you know a lot of people who are working in education the things that they're Mm. reporting about in school readiness and and kids and missing not- children we know about that raising absolutely in I mean, just, this week. it's heartbreaking it is heartbreaking uh, just going back to the inquiry if you do form a government late next year as the poll suggests that labor should do will you order all whatsapps to be released to the inquiry if there's, if there's still a battle will you just say we're in charge now and we're going to make sure well, this works I for think, the families i think the right thing to do is to say to the person in charge of the inquiry you ask for what you need and we'll make sure you get it. And that can, that can apply retrospectively, can it, to I a think previous it sh- government? I think it sh- well, uh, legally, I don't know. I'm not sure on that. <laughs> no, but, uh, I don't know. But I think it ought to. And mm. I think, you know, there's what the law says and then there's the right thing to Vote do. Vote Labour for a full inquiry is the, is, well, could be the political message from that. Let's but, leave you know, that to you. Let's hope they get on with it and that they're not running down the clock and that you know, the right thing is done quickly because mm. I don't really want to be sitting here making no. party political points out of this. And get it done quickly. My concern might be that the inquiry into the Iraq war stopped hearing evidence in 2011 and reported in 2016. Now this stops hearing evidence in 2026. We're looking at 2031. But there's not going to be one big moment at the end with this. There's going to be interim reports which reports. can guide because yes. you mean it may happen again we may have another pandemic yeah. later this decade and there might be some conclusions that are able to be reached fairly yes. soon yes. and then if that's the case let's have them when they're ready yes. but not everything has to be revealed all at once now you were formerly um, a brexit spokesman for the labor party oh, you, yes oh you still still are, are you <laughs> oh, yeah. such as brexit is okay mm. uh, but and also you're in the house of lords where you're guiding the opposition to this retained eu law bill are you content with that axing 600 measures rather than 4,000? I think we've got to a more sensible place. And I mean, not everyone's followed every minute of this. I appreciate that. But what the government wanted to do was there'd be a, a, big, bang. a big bang at the end of the year. 
all of these regulations would go, whether they were really useful or not. So civil servants were frantically trying to work out which regulations we were talking about to save them from the bonfire. And the government, quite late in the day, decided actually that wasn't sensible, as we had been pointing out mm. for a good old you know, six months or so, and have changed the way it's being done. So they've got their lists that they want to get rid of now, and then they've got powers over the next period to be able to restate, delete, whatever is appropriate. And we think that's It's that's more right. measured. Well, it's just give people a chance yeah. to yeah, yeah. at least work out what this regulation is and what it does yeah. and whether farmers need it or building sites need it. You know, at least notice what you're doing. Is, is Brexit for the Labour Party now the status quo? And is it about getting the best from that decision? Or is it about reversing that decision in 2016? Oh, it's absolutely not about reversing that decision. Few. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, few here as well. It. No, I couldn't. <laughs> We are where we are. You know, we all know what's happened and we all know the position the Labour Party's taken at various points, but we're out. So are we really saying we want to have another referendum to go back in? We are not. <laughs> um, and that means you, know, you take the deal that we have and make the best of it. And there are things that need to be done. You know, look at food and drink industry desperately needs a better deal so that they can trade freely. Not having that is one of the reasons we see increased cost of production in food that may even out though as as they develop supply lines or production lines but it may do but let's make it easy for manufacturers not hard and the same goes for cars and electric vehicles you know all of these things need to be sorted now, out would hear that and go hang on that sounds like getting close to the eu again that looks like we're trying to sort of reshape or re rejoin without saying we're rejoining they need to chill out this is about <laughs> trade yes. and making things easier not sovereignty which is what brexit is about for them okay well yeah it, it, i guess it was about that for them but for for us this is about jobs trade let's make life better for our manufacturers they've already had to go through a whole thing about northern ireland and getting that sorted out you know thankfully it looks like we've we've cleared at least one of the hurdles there it was done in a hurry at the end there are things that we think still need to be looked at. We're up for that. What we're not up for is another referendum or getting into the single market or any of that stuff. Cause or the customs union. No, no, not the customs union either. It's, you know, we, we're clear about what we want to do. People will have a view about it. We can have an argument about it. But that is, that that is, is where, where we, we are. are. That is where we are. Even though that might annoy some Labour supporters. Yeah, it does annoy some Labour supporters. But it might supporters. please or reassure some Tory supporters. But it's the only realistic deliverable thing to do. You know, it, we are outside the European Union. We're outside all these other formal structures. But we do have a responsibility as a party that wants to be in government to secure jobs and trade. You know, I don't see what's so yeah. hard about that. No, no, no you ran uh, Keir Starmer's campaign to be Labour leader. In fact, he was the, the first interview you did after he became Labour leader was on this podcast, which has a lot about him really? actually delivering on a, on a promise to do it back in well, goodness. There you go. It was May, May 2020, I think, when he yeah. became, April 2020. So, well, that must have been in lockdown then. Yeah, it was lockdown, yeah. yeah and his children were playing in the background. Uh, he was in his home. Is he ready to be PM? Is he up for it? Yes. He's got the character yeah. for it? Oh, he's definitely got the character for it. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, this guy is responsible, diligent, works incredibly hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, all the things you'd want in someone who's making he's, he's, big he, choices. Has he got the vision thing? Is he seen as, his critics say, as a technocrat? Is that unfair on him? I think that, I think that is unfair. I can see why people say that at this point, but that's partly because the way Kia leads is in quite a collegiate way. So 
what you get with hopefully a Labour government is a team of people led by Kia, but it's not this sort of solo, heroic kind of... I'm flying the plane on Which my Which the own. press try and sort put of. onto him, don't they? But I think that's a failing in modern politics. Thatcher, Blair. Think of those. Who are Johnson. Big, Johnson, even Johnson. Truss. Truss, yeah. It's kind of a football manager style thing. People, you know, you have this, this person, it's all about them and their failings and their qualities are what's going to make or break. Kier's never been like that. And he's very much about let's discuss, let's involve, and not just fellow politicians, the reason he spends so much time out and about around the country talking to businesses, community groups, all of that, is because he wants to properly understand and he wants to bring those people into the decision-making process. The first thing he did was a listening process, wasn't it? Yeah, that? yeah, we that did first a period. tour around the country as soon as we were allowed. Yes, you know, yeah. yeah, but we used to do, even before that, we used to do these like, online kind of Zoom call things with groups of voters and people on my podcast when he was Saturday breakfast actually saying I want to understand Brexit yeah interestingly he's and he he understands where that where that need came from for lots of people which which Labour were kind of not really thinking about much yeah and the other thing about him is he doesn't judge people who disagree with him which again is quite unusual in politics because you get a lot of people you hear you know oh they would say that or they're a you know right wing something or other you know and discounting things that people say because of who they are and and he's much more considered than that so I think in terms of with does that make a successful prime minister I think it does but it's quite an unusual style for late 20th perhaps, century perhaps 21st what, perhaps century. what we need is perhaps what we need is I think it is he has felt so divisive and yep. splintered this country since 16 and really since 2014 if you were in Scotland for that like I was yes I was perhaps you want this kind of bringing together I think what I want is someone who doesn't think you can do politics in 140 characters, that actually what you need is thoughtfulness and someone who's prepared to think that they're not, they don't have all the answers every single day about every question. Um, and I think actually maybe the sort of Twitter style of politics is evolving into a more podcast style of politics <laughs> where things do get well, more talked podcasting. about. Yeah, but, you know, people take time to explore ideas and arguments. Because nothing's really easy. I mean, things, choices aren't easy that you have to make in politics because if they're easy, you'd have made them 20 years ago. And yeah. they're not easy. And the public's got this too. They know that the simple solution, you know, let's vote to leave the EU, all our problems will be solved. They're like, hmm, <laughs> okay. You the know, mistake was actually that question was allowed to be asked. The mistake was that there been people who felt they'd been ignored for so long. That was the only answer. Yes, I completely agree with that. And I, but I, I think the public, you know, they're glad they got. It was it was important for democracy that that decision was honoured. It really mattered that that you know once we'd taken that decision, it was implemented. So that I think has been actually quite good because it proves that if you go out and vote for something, it happens. But I think that where the public is now is they still want those questions answered. They know that Brexit hasn't answered all of them. Those problems and those um, the issues that led to the Brexit vote still exist. So you can fix Brexit? I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> <laughs> Brexit well, means Brexit, Jenny. Well, Brexit means leaving the European Union. We've left the European Union. But the pressures on public services, the lack of control that people feel over their lives, the economic insecurity, all of those problems still there... And I think that those are the things that we need to now answer. Brexit hasn't resolved them, but people still want 
the, you know, the, the, those things that they were they were calling for in 2016. Well, Baroness Chapman, Jenny Chapman, thank you for joining us this week with a great chat on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Now, this weekend, the Tory party will whittle down their long list of prospective London mayoral candidates down to just three. And one of those hoping to make that short list to take on the current London mayor, Labour's Sadiq Khan, is a former advisor to David Cameron when he was in 10 Downing Street, Daniel Korski. Earlier this week, Michael Gove lent him his support, marking out Korski as one to watch. So I thought, what better than to ask him here at the Red Lion Pub for a cup of coffee and a chat about what a Korski-led London mayoralty would look like. Daniel Korski, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. I think we, we, we obviously crossed paths, didn't we, in the Cameron years. And, and, yeah, and, a long time ago. Long time ago. Why do you want to be London mayor? I want to be London mayor because I think London needs to change. I came to this city and I built a great life for myself, and I live what I've called the London dream. And increasingly, I see more and more people aren't able to live that London dream. They can't get the right education, a good job, they certainly can't buy a house. People are leaving London, complaining, frustrated, worried about walking the streets, and that's just not right. I want to rejuvenate that London dream, and I think I have the right combination of skills, being an outsider, but having worked in politics many years ago, building businesses in the meantime, and I think that combination of things and the drive and the What's energy. What's your background? Where were you born, just briefly? So I was born in Denmark. My parents were Polish Jewish refugees, and I came here in the late 90s, and I've just stayed. And the truth is, I came to London. You're an international citizen. I mean, I'm a Londoner and a Brit, yeah, um, but, but of course have a European background. From, yeah, which often is, is a lot of background of people in London. Well, I think that is London, right? That is London. And people say, well, hang on, what's your accent? And I jokingly reply, well, it's a London accent. And then people say, well, you don't speak Cockney, to which I reply, well, how many people <laughs> do you meet every day that speak Cockney? Today, London is a myriad of great accents, and mine is sort of one And of you're them. back, you're the, the people you've, you've signed up, ministers who we speak to in Parliament, back you Andrew Mitchell Michael Gove Johnny Mercer Baroness Morgan Tom Tuggenhat these are all senior players in the Tory party great people and it's fantastic to have the support but I'm also excited about having support from the outside from entrepreneurs from social activists people who make up London today and I think that's one of the real challenges for us in the Conservative Party which is to anchor ourselves in the support of our friends and colleagues but also move out beyond how much have you raised so far? Uh, you know these things aren't cheap I've had to raise a bit of money but what's how really much? tens of thousands? Uh, you know you don't want to talk about bank accounts million pounds uh, lots of money but, uh, you're yeah, public yeah, official yeah, you're not, yeah, you're not, I can well, ask these things you now. absolutely should and at the right time we'll review everything <laughs> but what's really exciting I'm getting calls from people who have never donated to politics who are really excited about the idea of rejuvenating London and okay. they're saying what can we do to pay and your big sell is tech it's business it it's entrepreneurship it's innovation it's creativity it's tech let's run through ideas so a, a YouGov for, gov for council service services one platform for all council services in London I think people are really frustrated if they work in one place live in another park their car in a third having to sort of run through lots of different apps, lots of council websites, some work brilliantly, some are terrible. Why can't we have a really simple service for people? Lots of other cities have managed to do it, Istanbul being one. Uh, I just recently came back from Tallinn in Estonia, a digital dynamo. You know, they've got it. Why can't we in London, the greatest digital city on the planet, why can't we make it easy so for citizens? Remove red tape from living. Yeah, make it easier. Admin stuff. Exactly. Use technology to make life easier. Okay, crime. Big problem. Have to deal with it. 
Obviously. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. What yeah. would you do? <laughs> well, a couple of things. First of all, we need to have more police officers on the street. I mean, there is no city that in the world. It costs money, though. It does, and I have a plan for it. But let me just talk you through what we need to do. First of all, there is no city that has dealt with crime without having more police on the street and more police in people's communities. And seen to be on the street. Seen to be on the street. Uh, for deterrence, for intelligence gathering, for building trust in a community. We need to have more police officers, and I've been very clear that we need to do that. I've said let's put a hotel tax on tourists that come to the city, just one or two pounds, which every other international city does. And Edinburgh is and starting. Edinburgh's starting it. And recent calculations show that it could make us about 140 million pounds. But you're a Tory, Dan. You don't put, you're not meant to increase taxes, you're meant to cut them. I love cutting taxes, but I tell you what Tories are also for, making life safe. And the thing that is going to make a huge difference of whether tourists come here or not is whether they're worried about getting mugged. I had a business partner come and see me, and on the way to the meeting, he was visiting from an overseas uh, capital, he got mugged and he's got, he got his watch You're stolen. you kidding me? No. And when that thing happens, people when say... When was that? It was a couple of months ago. And when that thing happens, people say to themselves, hang on, do I really want to be coming to London with my family? So yes, conservatives want to cut taxes, but we want to make things safe for people, safe to do their business, live their lives, and that requires more How police. How about reopening police stations? Absolutely, but I think the key here is something slightly different. It's how do we get back to more yeah. borough-based policing, policing in your neighbourhood, policing in your community. A big issue for Telegraph readers and listeners is the ULES zone. Will you cancel it? I will cancel the extension of the ULES. It is just not the right way to deal Into with the Into London, which is what Absolutely. the city planning. You know, at a time, uh, as people are coming out of the pandemic, there's been a massive market correction. Economic conditions are very difficult. The idea that this is the right thing to do is just, you know, patently absurd. And also, there are better things to do if what well, we're trying... Well, scrap altogether. Well, I think now... You need the money, don't you? Well, we need the money, but also, in inner London, there is a greater level of acceptance of the ULES, and Fewer people using cars to move around. In inner London, the truth is most of the cars that are moving around are either taxis or delivery vans or buses. But out of London, people really need their cars. And the idea that if you're a single mother, you're going to take your bicycle or the public transport down to the Aldi with your two kids is just absurd. Why is this happening? Do you think it's because officials don't really use the car much? The, the, the policy is written up by people who get the train into work, white-collar workers, or even maybe work from home and don't know what, how, what it's like to have a van and tools. I definitely think think there's a, a, a degree of prejudice, if you will, topographical prejudice. But I also think that it's been a result of Sadiq Khan mismanaging the finance of the city and therefore desperately having to find a way to claw back some money and then looking at that going, well, that's a way and then cloaking it in this sort of cloak of pro-environmentalism when in fact there are lots of other things that have to be done before. For example, dealing with pollution on the tube, much greater than on the streets. If you really care about pollution, let's focus on the tube. Because he's saying it's about pollution on the streets, isn't he? He's got a new book out called Breathe. It's about making the air quality better. Yeah, and I think what we've seen here is a mayor that has failed over now nearly two terms and is desperately grasping for a narrative, a story of what his mayoralty is about, and he's found that. Traffic lights. That's You're going to smile now. I'm going to smile. You want Happily. to turn them off at 10 o'clock and make them flash orange. What I want to do is keep traffic moving in the city. Yeah. We now move around in the city at the same speed that we moved around 200 years ago when horse-drawn carriages were moving us around. It makes no sense. And it certainly makes no sense in the evening and night when people are sitting on empty streets uh, in front of a red light, running their engine and emitting so many more CO2 emissions than if they were driving. It makes no sense. And other cities are doing it without do any carnage. Who does it? And no, and no, no crashes, no, no increased deaths? No, no increased deaths. There's no carnage everywhere. Everybody has reacted as if this was the most insanely brutal <laughs> idea. No, this is what's happening elsewhere. Let's be on the forefront of this. More Jubilee line doors in the underground? 
Well, that's costly too. It is. And it is. there's a, no magic money tree growing in City Hall. Well, I'll give you an example of where we can get the money. The Dubai metro system is so much smaller than the London Underground, and yet they make more money out of advertising, lots more money than we do. There are lots of ways in which we can make more money. What's Leicester Square sponsored by McDonald's? Well, or know, even McDonald's Square. I mean, it's changed in, the name. Back in the 90s, we used to have advertising on the tube, literally enwrapping the tube in yeah. advertising. That disappeared. But that is, you know, you know, millions and millions of unused advertising space that we can pitch to the market. And what we see in places like Hong Kong, uh, and I mentioned Dubai, but elsewhere, Las Vegas, they do better. We can yeah. manage the tube better and its finances better so we can afford the things that matter to London. You want to use photocatalytic nanotechnology, <laughs> which is special paint to absorb pollution on billboards there are so many things we can do if we care about pollution yes. did you know that there's special paint that you can paint not just on billboards but that you can paint on buildings on roofs that basically repel the sun the sun why do you want to do that keep them cool exactly keep them cool and why not to spend money on keeping them cool separately or heating them up led lights demarcate space for bikes my mate jeremy vine would approve well one of the issues we've got is we haven't found a, a kind of uh, let's say, an accommodation between cars, pedestrians, and cyclists in this city. and that's It's why a battle. Yeah, it's a battle. And so how do we create a battle without sort of dividing everybody as grimly as we do, making it really hard, for example, on embankment for, for drivers to, to pass through when there are no cyclists even? Well, lots of other cities have done smart things, like have LED lights on the road to, to demarcate where the cyclists yeah. ought to be. Why can't we learn from that? A big issue is housing, of course. Yes. Very hard to get on the housing ladder now in London. You want to use drones to, to track redundant space and use those spaces for new homes. So what's happened in London, uh, and frankly all over the country, is we've had a disappearance of small builders and emergence of just a sector largely made out of large builders, large developers. And what they do is they look for large plots because that's what's economically viable. Finding large plots is important, but there are lots of smaller, what I think of as oddly shaped plots that could very well accommodate thousands and thousands of homes. And instead of you know, asking councils to go and find them, why don't we use, you know, drones and satellite technology to identify those and then come up with, you know, building opportunities for smaller developers. It's not going to be the largest of the developers, but we could get thousands of houses yeah. like that. How about recycling bins? There's too many of them. <laughs> they get in the way. That really annoys Let's me. dig them into the ground. You know, in Amsterdam, <laughs> what? dig them into the ground. In Amsterdam and Liverpool, bins are underground. And so you basically have a small bin sticking up. In fact, they've tried this in, I think, in parts of Hackney and Barking. So you basically have the, the main part of the bin is underground. Right. You have a little bit of the bin sticking up on the surface. And it basically means that you can fill it a lot more, one. Two, it will tell the operators when it is full and needs to be picked up. So maybe you don't need the van to come every week. Maybe you need to are come... Are these household recycling bins or litter These bins? are on the street, litter okay. bins, yeah. You, you were thinking about... Well, recycling housing. bins, which, are, which is... Although the, the, the councils can have fewer bins or have them better... better. They're just annoying, aren't they? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> One of the things I've always wondered about is you sort of... You have such a different kind of uh, policy depending on where you are in the city and I sort of often wonder well know, they cluster up the street and you, yeah. if you've got a wheelchair or a pushchair it's hard to get around them absolutely um, look I'm going to be honest with you I haven't thought about redesigning the bins yet but I'll take <laughs> it away and I'll think about it so overall then Dan Korsky your vision is one of, of you or, I mean it's what Rishi Sunak will sign up to it's a kind of a, a tech future for this, for this capital well I hope this is something everybody was going to sign up for this is an optimistic aspirational inspirational idea of what London should become London has talked itself down. 
Sadiq Khan has run it down, but the Conservatives have too often been part of talking it's it down. It's a Labour city, Dan Korski. No, it's a You have to be a special candidate called Boris Johnson to win twice. He can't. He is indeed a special candidate, but he wasn't so special when he ran the first time around. This is a wonderful city of aspirational, inspirational people from everywhere and from London, and they want hope and optimism and a great story that they can is he play back, their part Is he in. backing you? Johnson, have you called him up? He, uh, he knows how to win in London. He, looks, he does, and I would love his support, but I've noticed he's been a bit busy these days. <laughs> but of course, if he's <laughs> listening to this, you know, please sign up. But would he help, though? Because You've he's got quite to ask a Marmite character. Yeah. No, would, for you, would he help? Would you want his support, or do you think it could be difficult? Well, I'd, I'd he love. He divides s- opinion now. Well, of course. I mean, what do you mean, would I like? Well, of course, I'd love his support. I mean, this is, you know, for me, you know, this is an incredibly successful mayor of London who has who gave the city so much, frankly, that is that is still benefiting from today. So, I, if he's listening. You know, I'd love your support, Warren. <laughs> um, but equally, I'd love the support of many others too. Big weekend for you because the party is going to sift down as many as nine or a dozen candidates to three. Yeah, this is now it comes down to the crunch. Yeah, this weekend uh, we'll be speaking to the London board uh, of selectors, and hopefully, you know, my vision of an inspirational London is going to take take them by storm. Well, that's for listeners to decide. But thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Well, that's all for this week's Chopper's Politics Podcast listeners. Thank you to my guests, David Davis, MP, Daniel Korski, and Baroness Chapman, Jenny Chapman. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and to our brilliant star helper this week, Alex Georges. And most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. For more insights into the wonderful world of Westminster, please do sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. It arrives straight into your email inbox every weekday, and the link for that will be in the show notes to this episode. And don't forget to read my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out every Friday at 7pm online and in Saturday's copy of the Daily Telegraph. And on that note, as always, please do buy a copy of the Telegraph if you can, where you can. I know you won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio! Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.